You're listening to the East Point Podcast. For more information about East Point, check out our website at www.epcjax.com. So we're going to begin in John chapter 14. Would you look there with me, please? John chapter 14. I'm going to read to you a text, and then I'm going to give you all five points. We're actually going to approach this today from the... um, from the uh, perspective of five buoys that help us navigate our way through this topic, okay? So we're going to give those to you in just a minute before we do uh, John chapter 14. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're relying on the PowerPoint, say, I'm watching. (laughs) Some of you do that, don't you? You got your Bible, but you're not opening it. All right. Okay. John 14 and uh, beginning in verse number 16. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. Would you highlight that word helper? I'm going to come back to that in a minute. He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you, how long, church? Forever. The Spirit of truth, would you underline the word spirit in your Bible or highlight that? Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. For he dwells with you, notice this statement, and will be in you. Now that's a future tense term because Jesus had not left yet. He said, I'm going to send him and the Holy Spirit will indwell you and he will be with you forever. Now that's important because there's a difference in the way the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament under the new covenant and the way he worked in the Old Testament. Can I get an uh uh-huh? All right. So we're going to deal with that also. Now, uh, let, me, let me give you a couple of things about the words you highlighted or underlined. And may I encourage you to do this? Let me encourage you to bring your pen with you. We try to supply you at least with a half sheet of paper. Some of you take notes on the back side of that. And uh, some of you, I've seen some of your notes are better than mine. Uh, and uh, you do a great job at that. But let me encourage you to, to bring a highlighter with you or something. and Just follow along the Word of God. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is He teaches us. He guides us. So, so let Him do that with you and study the Word as we go. And I know many of you already do that. But the word helper is interesting. In the Greek, the word is parakletos. And para, you might recognize as meaning uh, to come alongside. And so that's literally what, what that word means. It means one who comes alongside. Jesus called him a, a helper. Now, in some texts, he's called the comforter. Uh, and and it's, the, it's the Greek word parakletos. And so he comes alongside us. It's interesting that Jesus said, I'm going to send you another parakletos. Because he himself was there with them, right? So what he's saying is, I'll no longer be with you in the flesh but my spirit will be with you. My Holy Spirit will come and he will be with you and he will abide with you. How long again? Forever. And then he, he called him the spirit of truth. The word spirit, I asked you to highlight or underline. It is the word pneuma. Most of us, of course, understand the word pneuma from terms like pneumatic or uh, pneumonia has having something to do with air or wind. Literally, it means the breath of God. Translated spirit here. It's the life-giving wind or breath of God. So the Bible calls the Holy Spirit these terms, the Spirit of truth and the helper. We're going to talk more about what the Bible recognizes him as in just a moment. But before we do that, let me give you all five of our buoys that are going to help us get through this lesson today. And you can write them down and then we'll go back and talk about it. We're going to talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that he is co-equal with God. He is co-eternal. We're going to talk about the third person of the Godhead. Then we're going to talk about the drawing of the Holy Spirit. This is when the Holy Spirit reaches out and draws us to salvation. We're going to deal with whether or not you can actually resist that. There's a lot of interesting uh, uh, thoughts that go on regarding that. We're going to look at Scripture concerning that. That's a good place to look. Can I get in? Uh-huh. Always good to do that. The defiance toward the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a little fun when we come to that one because we are going to talk about not only resisting whether it can be done, but we're also going to talk about something called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Many of us know it as the unpardonable sin. We're going to deal with that this morning, talk about whether or not it can be committed, and if so, what does it involve? And then we're going to talk about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, More specifically, it will be the indwelling, but indwelling begins with I, and it doesn't fit my outline. (laughs) So we're going to talk about the... (laughs) We're going to talk about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, how he, uh, of course, lives within us, and uh, how that differs a little from the Old Testament, although he did indwell in the Old Testament, but he came and went. 
And then last of all, we're going to talk about the duties of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we come to that, uh, we're going to give you an abbreviated uh, fashion uh, a lesson concerning the duties, because that in itself, when you talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or you talk about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, those are series unto themselves. Would you agree? So I know you want to eat lunch sometime today, and so we're going we're gonna to give you an abbreviated form uh, of that, uh, that point, all right? So let's go back and talk about the deity of Jesus for just a minute. And when we talk about the deity of, I'm sorry, the deity of the Holy Spirit, which we'll deal with Jesus too, because we're dealing with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? <clears throat> now, is he indeed God, the Holy Spirit? Is he God? Well, yeah. Uh, so let's go a little further. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. We know this is the Great Commission. Notice that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, which are interchangeable terms, by the way, uh, are, are used. The Holy Spirit's name appears here. And notice the use of the word name and not the plural form of it. It doesn't say names, but name. Now that's significant. Look at what the verse says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost. Now, so it doesn't say, baptize them in the names, but the name. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. Now, I know that that's confusing for many. Uh, and I'm reminded of the old saying that I've shared with you before, that he who tries to defy the Trinity will lose his soul, and he who tries to define the Trinity will lose his mind. But the truth of the matter is that we understand through faith and plugging it into the Scripture that this is what the Bible teaches. And that's what I'm trying to give you here in this point, that there are many, many verses that deal with the Holy Spirit as God, and we need to understand that. So being God means He has all the attributes of God. It means it's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit. It's all right to worship and to praise Him. That is true. Although the work of the Holy Spirit primarily will direct you to Jesus. He will always direct you to Jesus. And that's an important thing that we, uh, that we understand as well. Okay, so as we go down through here, uh, let me remind you that the Holy Spirit appears at the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember that? We have the Trinity there, by the way. It is mentioned in Matthew chapter number 3, where Jesus goes into the water. There's a voice from heaven that's heard, which is the Father, speaking concerning the Son. And then there is a, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Do you recall that? So we have God the Father, and we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit, all present at the baptism of Jesus. We find that uh, He is the Father of Jesus. Interesting statement here. He is one and the same with the Father. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit and the Father, synonymous, one in the same, if you will. Now, uh, as you keep reading, it's interesting in the scriptures that he is actually called God by Peter in Acts chapter number five. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Hmm? That's the story why we all applaud when it's offering time, right? We, we don't want to be associated with them, so we're cheerful givers. And uh, so Ananias and Sapphira, you might remember that in that text in verse number three, Peter said, you have lied to God, or he said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. In verse 4, he said, you've not lied to men, but to God. So he renames the Holy Spirit God in the next verse. So he calls the Holy Spirit God. I'm also reminded that God himself is called Spirit, the Spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24, God is Spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, we find the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Again, we're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about there are three persons, but only one God, and how that they are uh, interchanged and, and terms are used. The Spirit of Christ, where does it say that? Romans chapter 8, verse number 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God, notice that, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He is not His. So we have the Spirit of God renamed the Spirit of Christ in that verse. Is it right to say that the Holy Spirit lives within me or that the Spirit of Jesus, that Jesus lives within me? The answer is yes. Either one. 
Because the fact is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. We also find this same truth in the book of Galatians in the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. It reads this way, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son. Did you catch that? The Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So we have all of these terms that are used concerning the Holy Spirit of God and the fact that He is the third person of the Godhead. We know that He appears at the time of creation. Interesting uh, situation in the first three verses of the Bible, we have the Trinity. We have God the Father, we have God the Holy Spirit, and we have God the Son, or rather God the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. If you'll look at that text with me for a moment at the beginning of your Bibles, let's turn over there and we'll read uh, Genesis chapter 1 and uh, beginning in verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. Notice this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. So what do we have here? We have God the Father. We have God the Spirit, and we have God the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1 tells us. Can I get an uh uh-huh? So we have the Trinity right there at the beginning of the Word. Now, there are all kinds of examples and illustrations that people have used. We dealt with these in the last couple of weeks. We mentioned a few. Brother Jim Atkinson brought to me a a story that uh, he had interest in and studied out of a test tube involving water. And you can actually create the experiment of uh, freezing the, the bottom portion into solid. The middle will remain liquid and the top turns into vapor. And he uses that as an illustration. So water is a great example. But the point of the matter is this, that we must understand that God is transcendent. We've dealt with this in the last few weeks. Like we sung a moment ago, there's none like him. So we search for analogies to try to understand and, and, and some sort of a comparative that we can use to describe God, and we come up short every time. That's because there's none like Him. But when we take these things, this knowledge that God has given to us, that there is but one God, three persons, and we plug it into the Scriptures like we're doing right now, it makes perfect sense. It works. It's right there for us to see. I'm reminded that the Bible tells us in John chapter 15 that the Spirit of God proceeds from the Father. That is, the breath of God comes from the Father. John chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Helper comes, that's the parakletos, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Now, the Holy Spirit is indeed uh, present in the Old Testament. We're going to talk in just a little bit about um, how He worked in the Old Testament and how it differs from the New Testament as far as the New Covenant is concerned. But, but there's a wonderful passage in Ezekiel 37 that I want to draw your attention to. It's the passage of the Valley of the Dry Bones. You remember the story? The prophet lo- looked out and he saw this valley and it was full of dry bones and he asked God a question. Shall these bones live? And God told him to do something, and it was an interesting statement, but I want you to see it because I happen to believe, as as several others, including Arthur Pink, believe, that it's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God in Ezekiel 37. And beginning in verse 9, it reads this way, Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, or to the wind, depending on the version you have, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. The pneuma of God, the breath of God, the wind of God, the life-giving breath. May I remind you that when God formed man of the dust of the ground, he breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we understand that the Spirit of God has a generative power and a regenerative power. We understand the regeneration that has to do with salvation. Now having said all of that, let's move on a little further and let's talk about the drawing of the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by this? Well, I believe this is the first encounter that we typically have with the Holy Spirit. And this is when He reaches out and draws us. 
It's the, the work that only he can do. And the Bible tells us, for instance, in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So most of you may remember a time in your life when you trusted Christ as your Savior. You started uh, having some sense of, of what I will call both a knowledge of sin and a need for a Savior that began to develop in you. Well, that was the Holy Spirit that did that. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever's life. By the way, I think that is the limit of the work of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever's life. That is, He will not gift you as an unbeliever, one who has not been born again. He has no reason to give to you the gifts of the Spirit that are to edify the church. You might be talented as a lost person, but there's a difference in talent and gifts. And uh, Lord willing, if we have enough time and you're not too hungry, we'll deal with that when we get there. But then in John chapter 12 and verse 32, we have another interesting statement. And Jesus here is, is applying an Old Testament teaching, a, an event that took place in the Old Testament. And you have to understand a little bit of it before I read the verse to you. And, and that is that in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were walking through the wilderness and they, they disobeyed God, God sent a plague their way and he created, he allowed the snakes to come and, and uh, uh, to begin to bite them and they were dying and thousands of them were dying. And so he said to Moses, Moses, I want you to make a, a, a brazen serpent and I want you to lift it up. And many of us used to sing the old hymn, you might remember the old hymn, Look and Live. And that comes from that text, where the people were told to look upon this, this that God had told Moses to make. And if they looked upon it, they would live. And it was a symbol of who Jesus Christ is, and that if we would look to Jesus, then we would live. And we would overcome the penalty of death that sin has brought our way. So Jesus himself, I believe, is referring to that in John 12, in verse 32, when he made this statement. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men or all people to myself. So when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw people. Now, I happen to believe this. I happen to believe that God meant what he said, and he used the word all. Now, that means there's a general call unto salvation. I want to make this very clear that we understand where we are. We need to understand that all people will be drawn, but not all people respond to that drawing. Not all people do. You say, well, I just don't believe that God can be resisted. Well, I'll, I'll deal with that in just a moment. But permit me for the moment to say to you that Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I believe there's a point in our lives when God begins to work in our life and direct us toward an understanding, again, those two areas, the knowledge of sin and the need of a Savior. And then we do something with that. We either receive that or we reject that according to the will of man and according to whether or not you are going to yield. There's all kinds of things concerning this in our relation to our response to God. There, in the Bible, it deals with things like yielding. It deals with submitting. It deals with grieving. It deals with resisting. And yes, it does deal with that very word. And we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, we find an interesting thing concerning this drawing. And that is, uh, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. Let me stop there for a moment. Peter has been declaring what the Word of God has said, and people were listening. And as they heard the Word of God, and they heard about the God of the Word, and they heard about Jesus, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. It, it pricked their heart. That, that's what we experience whenever we start understanding the knowledge of sin and the need of a Savior. That's the drawing process. I've seen people sit in a church service just like this one, and in the invitation time, they've gripped uh, the seat in front of them until their knuckles are white because they're, they're trying to deal with this thing of being cut to the heart. They're trying to deal with this thing of being drawn to salvation. And some respond. I've seen people run down an aisle. I've seen it happen. Just crash at the altar because they finally gave in to what God has been calling them to do. I've seen others resist and resist and resist. And, and again, let me just say this to you. If God is doing that in your heart and you feel that drawing, then I beg you to respond to that drawing. It will not always be there. It will not. There is nothing in the scripture that indicates it will always be there. To the contrary, it tells us it will not always be there. So if you experience that drawing, please respond to that drawing and respond to what God has told you. So this is what God does with this this and the bible says they were cut to the heart and said to peter and to the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do then peter said to them repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So drawing brings us to that point. Our heart is is stirred, and, and it brings us to the point of asking, what do I need to do? The Philippian jailer asked it this way, what shall I do to be saved? What do I need to do to be saved? Now, that's what the drawing of the Holy Spirit will do in our lives. Having said all of that, let me, uh, let me jump into the defiance toward the Holy Spirit. I realize that we have some that may differ with me as to whether or not you can resist the Holy Spirit. Some say because the Holy Spirit is God and He is sovereign God that you cannot say no to the Holy Spirit. Well, Stephen would have a problem with that. I'm talking about Stephen that was stoned uh, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. This poor guy preached one message and he died because of it. Oh, me. They killed him. At least we only know of one he ever talked about, one he preached. But he did say this, Acts 7, verse 51. He said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He said, Listen, the Holy Spirit's been trying to get a hold of you, and you won't submit to it. You keep resisting what he's saying. So for those of you that don't believe that can happen, I, I ask you to define that for me. Uh, and, and what exactly that's referring to. And then, uh, again, back to the idea of a general call versus a scripture like, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verses that deal with Jesus dying for all the sins of the world, for the whole sin, uh, all sin. And yet, just because he died for the sin doesn't mean you've applied that payment to your own sin. You've got to call on him to do that. Can I get an aha uh-huh or an amen? First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 The Bible uses the word quench. Very interesting word. The Bible says, do not quench the spirit. Well, what does quench mean? In the Hebrew, literally, I'm sorry, in the Greek, literally it means to extinguish a fire, to stifle it. So here's what happens. The Spirit of God comes upon you. The Spirit of God begins to deal with you. He cuts you to the heart. You begin to realize and conviction sets in. That's what we call it. And all of a sudden now you're being drawn. You can actually, according to the Word of God, quench that fire. You can pour water on it. You can cool it, whatever you want to call it. And you can say no and resist. If you do, you may very well spend eternity in the lake of fire. Just make a, make a note of that, please, because it doesn't mean he'll ever draw you again. But I do believe in a general call as well as an elect call, and we can deal with election when we get to the subject of salvation, which we will get to in the weeks to come in our, in our whole series of being unshakable. But for now, let me say this to you. The Bible also tells us that you can insult the Spirit of God. Did you know that? You can insult him. I would prefer you didn't, and I'm sure he would prefer you didn't, but the Bible does say that you can. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter number 10, beginning, or let's look at verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? And again, I challenge you not to insult the Holy Spirit, not to grieve Him, not to resist Him, not to quench Him. All of these things are important that you do not do. Yet none of these things seem to carry with it the type of penalty that the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost carries. So let me spend a moment with you and deal what commonly is called the unpardonable sin. Let me deal first of all with what we typically say it is. I hear people all the time say, well, pastor, don't you believe the unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus? No, I do not believe that. You say, why don't you believe that? Well, because this sin is a sin that cannot be pardoned. And I know people who have rejected the call of salvation and then later decided they realized they needed to be saved and they got saved, which meant God forgave that. (gasps) Amen. You say, what are you getting at? I'm saying that that's not it. As a matter of fact, let me go a step farther with you. Many years ago, I began to, to see and understand as reading the scriptures through that Paul, the apostle, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, who wrote some 14 books of the New Testament of the 27, never talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He never talks about the unpardonable sin. Never does he deal with it. And I began to wonder about that. And I thought, you know, why is it that if you can commit a sin that could never be forgiven... Why wouldn't he tell us about it? Why wouldn't he warn us about it? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit want us to know it? 
The only time it appears is in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, and there were specific circumstances in which it appeared in. The Bible tells us in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So we have a group of religious people who said Jesus is doing what he's doing by the power of the devil. When in fact he was doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So then Jesus said in verse 31, same chapter, Matthew 12, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. The only time that I can see that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could even happen was during the earthly life of the Lord Jesus and the circumstances were that he was performing some sort of an act or miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit and someone attributed that to being the power of Satan. Which means, at least this preacher believes, you can't commit that sin today. The circumstances do not exist. And I believe that's why we were not warned of it. But nonetheless, uh, you uh, form whatever opinion you like. But I would encourage you to look at that and and realize that uh, uh, you should not reject Jesus by any means because you may find yourself, if you reject Jesus and leave this world and God calls you out of this world, you will not spend eternity with Him, but you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So I encourage you to understand that, yes, the rejection of the Holy Spirit or rejection of the drawing of the Holy Spirit, rejection of Jesus can result in eternal damnation, but that is not the unpardonable sin. If you have rejected Him before and you feel drawn today, you should respond to that drawing and trust Christ as your Savior, and He stands ready to forgive. So we have the defiance toward the Holy Spirit is the third buoy. The fourth in our study is going to be the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now we've already mentioned to you that He indwells and and this is different uh, somewhat. His, his uh, behavior and, and role in the New Testament is different than that of the Old Testament. He did indwell in the Old Testament, but he mostly came upon. It always had to do with purpose. And sin or unrighteousness would drive him from you in the Old Testament. Now, we make a mistake when we take Old Testament theology and apply it to New Testament understanding for us today. We make a mistake when we do that. Let me give you a good example. David, the psalmist, had sinned against God. Can I get an aha? Uh-huh? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her, had her husband murdered, and in Psalm 51, he is praying, he is repenting. It's his repentance prayer. And he cries out in that psalm and says something very interesting. He says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, Jesus said, I will send him to you and he will be with you forever. Now, if in the Old Testament he indwelled forever, there was no need for David to pray such a prayer. But because in the Old Testament he did not dwell with them forever, but he would come upon them and leave and indwell some and leave, we find that the Bible talks about the Spirit of God that rested in Joseph and the Spirit of God that was seen in Daniel. So we understand the Spirit of God, but we also know that in the Old Testament he would come and he would go. In the New, Jesus said, I'm going to give him to you and he will abide with you forever. Forever. Now that doesn't mean that you cannot stifle him and quench him and, and uh, have him driven over into one heart, one corner of your heart and you're not listening. It doesn't mean that because it happens sometimes in a person's life even though they've been saved and he, he dwells there. But nonetheless, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So the scripture tells us if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Romans 8 verse 9, we read that verse earlier. So if you have not the spirit of Christ, you're none of his. And yet, uh, the Bible says to us in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You ever tried to explain to somebody how you know you're saved? That's not the easiest thing in the world to do, is it? Somewhere you end up saying something like, well, I just know it. That doesn't go very far in apologetics when you're talking to somebody and you're trying to defend your faith. Well, how do you know it? Well, I just know it. You just know it because the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit the spirit of man. And he tells you, hey, I'm here. Hey, I've taken care of that. I have sealed you. We're going to talk about that also when we get to the duties 
uh, concerning the Holy Spirit and the sealing, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is there. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit. When He moves in, you get all of the Holy Spirit there is to get. He doesn't necessarily get all of you. And may I say to you, that is the difference in what is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The baptism is synonymous with the indwelling. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in. But as you give more of your life over, He fills every room. Think of it as, a, uh, as inviting uh, the church over to your house for just a minute. And you have that one room. That one room that nobody is supposed to go in. That one room that you please don't go in there. You have that door shut and barricaded. You don't want anybody. Because that's where you put everything else in order to tidy up. And, and you don't want anybody in there. And some of us, when we, when we trusted Christ as our Savior, you, you did that in your heart. You got this one room that you leave to yourself. And you don't necessarily want to give Him a master key. But when the filling takes place, the filling of the Holy Spirit is when He has total control over your life. There's a difference. There's a difference. And so we will deal with the duties of the Holy Spirit, which is a, a, a great way of coming off of what we've just been talking about. Let me, let me give you sort of an abbreviated version of this. Now, there are some things we're not going to spend a lot of time on in this. For instance, the inspiring work in which he revealed to us the Word of God. We will deal with that when we study the Bible, which will more than likely be next Sunday Uh, Lord willing, we'll talk about the scriptures, the holy scriptures, and whether or not they came from God. Is it really the word of God? Has it been preserved? And how do we know that? So we won't deal with inspiration. We won't deal with uh, uh, so much with uh, intercession today, although he intercedes for us. He pleads for us and prays for us. We necessarily won't spend time on the interpretation, how he illuminates the scripture and shows us what the word of God says. But what we will do is talk a little bit about how he regenerates our spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3 and verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now what do we mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Can I take you back for a moment to the garden? Can I take you back when God said to Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat thereof you will surely die. So they ate of it, but they didn't drop over. No, they didn't drop over, but they died instantly spiritually and began to die physically. So what happens? What happens is the the sin of Adam was passed on to all of us except this one called Jesus, whose father was not of the lineage of Adam. He was the Holy Spirit of God. So we have a person born of woman, not born of man, who was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Because he didn't have the inherited sin. That inherited sin produced a dead spirit within us. Now that dead spirit can be identified by that God-sized void or hole in our life that we spend, it seems, uh, all sorts of efforts on trying to fill. And as long as we're lost without Christ, we attempt all sorts of stuff. And only to come up short every time. Somewhere, maybe in this congregation or maybe listening to this message online, there is somebody who says, you know, something is missing. And you're right. What is missing is the life of the Spirit that only the Holy Spirit can supply. What is missing is God because He created man to be in fellowship with Him. And so the Bible tells us that when you call on Jesus as your Savior and the Spirit of Christ moves in, there's something that happens to that old dead spirit. It is regenerated. That is, it is brought back to life. We use the phrase, we're born again. Amen? Some of you want to shout, you're just not sure you can. What happens if I shout? What happens if I actually do what the Holy Spirit's leading me to do? My goodness. I was reminded of what Chuck Swindoll said on one occasion. He said, those in church leadership seem to be afraid of the Spirit of God. They seem to think that somehow he's going to do something that we can't explain. He said, I found that that disturbs many folks, but it energizes me, he said, I admit. The Spirit of God. 
He regenerates us. He seals us. We mentioned that earlier. The Bible says uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1 also deals with the sealing. What is that sealing? How many of you have done some canning before in your lives? Anybody here? Preserves and so forth. You take those preserves and you pour them in and you put a seal on that, don't you? You pour a wax seal in there and you seal that stuff up and then you put it away. And it can stay away for years, man. And then you break it out and you, and you open it up and you, and you break that seal. And the preserves that are in there are just as fresh as they were the day you put them in there. And what the Bible is describing to us is when Jesus Christ saved your soul and the Holy Spirit came into you, He put a seal on you. So that no matter how many years and how many storms and how many problems you've been through, when he actually reaches down and receives you into heaven and that seal is opened up, you are as freshly saved as you were the very second he came into your heart. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. You didn't do anything to get it and you can't do anything to keep it. He does it. He keeps you. He seals you. He comforts us. We understand that He is the comforter. He guides us. We talked about that earlier. Pastor T, in his, in his uh, uh, words before his song, talked about how He will guide us into all truth. And indeed, He does that. He guides us. The Bible says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 14. So the Spirit of God will guide and direct in our lives. He equips us. We think about the equipping of the Lord. We deal with the, the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a series unto itself. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, verse 4 says. Verse 7 says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. May I stop for a moment and say that the gifts of God are supernatural gifts. Don't confuse them with talents. There are many people, even in our church, we have some of the most talented people in all the world. But let me tell you something about those of you who who are talented, all of us that are gathered out here and listening to this. Let me me caution you on something. Be very careful, because when God has blessed you with talent, you sometimes do what you do out of your own ability and you never rely on God. Because there's a difference between doing it out of the flesh and doing it in the spirit. Will God ever call you to do something that you're not able to do? The answer is yes. Because it is only then that you'll understand the work and the power that the Holy Spirit of God has to supply you with. So if all you're doing is doing what you're able to do, you've never tapped into the power that the Holy Spirit has. But He gives people gifts in order for the edification of the church and the glorification of God. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to use those gifts. He develops in us fruit. The Bible says there's fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the Bible tells us. In Galatians, he mentions all of this in chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. These are things that the Holy Spirit produces in us. They're not personality-related. They're not environment Uh, uh, affected or influenced thereby the Holy Spirit of God he produces those things in us and then last of all I want to deal with the fact that he convicts us there's no question that he convicts us even as believers when we do something we ought not do he'll remind us he'll not remain silent sitting over there on the side he'll tap us on that shoulder he'll remind us of what we've done we should not have done and the best thing in the world to do is remember first John 1 verses 8 and 9 if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May I say to you, there are probably times in your life that you can remember that you were not in fellowship with your dad or your mom, your parents, but you were still in their family. This is the way it is with the believer. When you've been born again, you have entered the family of God, but it doesn't mean you're in fellowship with God. We can come away from God in the sense that we live a life that's not pleasing to Him. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit of God is not going to remain there without letting you know, hey, you're not right. You need to take care of that. And the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit is evidence of your salvation at that point. 
If you claim to be saved and you're never affected by anything you do and knowing that it's not consistent with what the Word of God teaches, I ask you to question your salvation. Because if you're truly saved, He's going to tell you that you should not have done as a child of God. Someone shared with me this story uh, and uh, earlier in the week, I'll share it with you. He said it was going around on Facebook and some of you may have heard it. I'm going to call the little boy Billy in the story. Little Billy and his sister went to stay with uh, their aunt. They got there and little Billy was working on his slingshot accuracy. Well, the aunt had a pet duck. And sure enough, little Billy got that duck right in his sights, pulled that rock back and let her fly. Billy killed the duck took the duck out back and began to bury it, thinking nobody will know. They'll think he just wandered off. And just as he turned around to go back to the house, he noticed someone staring out the window upstairs. It was his sister. So that night, they sat down to eat, and the aunt said now, spoke to the sister and said, it's time for you to do the dishes. And she said, oh, Billy wants to do the dishes tonight. <laughs> and she uh, walked by him and whispered, remember the duck. Sure enough, the next day came, and it was her turn to clean the house. And Oh, Billy, Billy wants to stay home and clean the house, she said. He's asked to do that. And again, remember the duck. Well, this went on for several days, and he was growing very, very tired. And he'd actually come under such conviction, he couldn't sleep well at night. He wasn't eating, and finally he went to his aunt. He said, I just can't stand it anymore. i got to tell you what I've done. I killed your duck. She looked at him, and... She said, oh, she said, but I I know, I saw it when it happened. She said, I was just waiting on you to come and let me know. I've already forgiven you, Billy. And she reached out and put her arms around him. And the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, some of us are walking around with stuff in our life. God already knows. And we've not confessed it. We've not taken care of it and let the Holy Spirit just wrap his arms around you and say, I already know, it's okay. It's all right, we can get past this. We can go on from here. Your relationship with God. He loves you so much. So I want to encourage you to think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether you're here today and He's drawing you to salvation, whether you're here today and He's calling you to service like He did Paul and Barnabas, or whether He's here and He's put some sort of conviction in your heart that says you better take care of that, you need to get that thing right, get back into fellowship with God, regardless of what He's doing, let Him do and yield to the working of the Holy Spirit of God.